1: It's Thursday, January 14th. Mayor Todd Gloria gives his first State of the City address. That story's next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported more than 3,200 new coronavirus cases on Wednesday and 54 additional deaths. The state of California today authorized immediate access to COVID-19 vaccines for all residents aged 65 and older. That's following new guidance from the federal government. The National Association of Chain Drug Stores projects that retail pharmacies can meet demand for 100 million vaccines in one month across the United States when such supply is available. The state will also be rolling out a new system for people to register for notifications regarding vaccine eligibility next week. On Wednesday, the San Diego Foundation pledged $300,000 in COVID-19 relief funding for small businesses in Black, Latino, and Asian communities. The money will be distributed evenly between three groups, the San Diego Black Chamber of Commerce, the Local Initiative Support Corporation of San Diego, and the Asian Business Association of San Diego. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. The pandemic, homelessness, social equity, budget deficits, and climate change were top of mind in San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria's first ever State of the City address. The speech was jam-packed, full of proposals for tackling the various issues he laid out. He spoke at the library at San Isidro. Here are some of the highlights.
2: My first executive order was to protect our hospital system and save lives. We need to hold accountable those who choose to blatantly and egregiously defy public health orders. The arrival of vaccines has given great hope. But the reality is that it's going to be months before we can possibly let our guards down. Behind the ribbon cuttings and news conferences, the city faced structural budget deficits. I've inherited a budget deficit that exceeds $150 million and will require difficult decisions to preserve neighborhood services. That hole in our budget is greater than what it takes. So I am pledging a renewed focus on housing first solutions for our city. That means creating permanent supportive housing with wraparound services for people who are unsheltered. San Diego can be a leader. I'll be working with my colleagues at Sandag to approve the 2021 Regional Plan known as the Five Big Moves. It will create a transportation blueprint for our region that is equitable, sustainable, and improves the everyday lives of millions of people. We've already started moving some folks into recently purchased hotels that have been converted into housing through Governor Newsom's Project Home Key. I'm working with local, state, and federal partners to secure the funding to purchase more housing units and invest in supportive services. We have to not only help people get off the streets, but stay off the streets.
1: For San Diego's zero-traffic death goals, he proposed creating pedestrian promenades in Hillcrest and in downtown. For homelessness, Gloria echoed proposals made by County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher on expanding access to mental health services. Gloria said mental health services should be the first point of contact for homeless individuals. Gloria also discussed law enforcement reform following a summer of protests for racial justice.
2: This starts with acknowledging Clearly and definitively that black lives matter Now we can't just say it our actions must prove it hire officers who reflect the diversity of our city and The department has updated its policies and procedures to reflect best practices and emphasize de-escalation This is a good start But we must and we will do better
1: Gloria promised to work closely with the San Diego Police Department. Gloria also committed to building an Office of Race and Equity at City Hall with support from Councilmember Monica Montgomery and social justice leaders. Gloria says he'll be creating a climate equity fund for sustainability projects in vulnerable communities. You can find the full 30-minute version of Todd Gloria's speech at KPBS's YouTube channel or on our website at kpbs.org. San Diego's congressional representatives were on Capitol Hill on Wednesday making their cases for or against the impeachment of President Donald Trump. All Democratic congressional representatives voted to impeach, saying Trump must be held accountable for last week's insurrection at the Capitol.
3: Many of my colleagues have said that it's a time for healing and unity, and I agree. I agree. After four years of this administration, it is a time for healing and it is a time for unity. But you cannot have true healing or unity without accountability. We had a decision to make today, each of us that took the oath of office, whether or not we would stand against domestic terrorism and the incitement of insurrection against the capital of the United States, or whether we would look the other way.
1: That was 49th District Representative Mike Levin. East County Republican Congressman Daryl Issa cast a no vote.
3: The fact is, today we are trying to punish the president, at least some are, for four years of what he did, not for what happened last week.
1: 20,000 National Guard troops have since been deployed to protect the Capitol ahead of next week's inauguration ceremony. Congressman Scott Peters had this to say about the security situation in D.C.
3: Well, it's heavily armed now, and a perimeter fence is being built that's supposedly not scalable, according to the law enforcement. I know that the thing that, that we would look forward to is that the Secret Service is in charge of, the, uh, of this national security event, the inauguration, not the Capitol Police. Capitol Police really failed us. Uh, you know, the United States Capitol has to be one of the most prominent terrorist uh, targets in the world. And the notion that a mob of civilians could overrun our police force uh, and do that kind of damage uh, and desecrate the Capitol and threaten lawmakers and our staffs is really outrageous. Uh, and I do think part of it is that we didn't get federal help quick enough and we didn't get, a, we didn't get help from President Trump. I'm sure, that's part of it, but there was a big failure. I think that going forward, we know that, um, that we do have a, a number of, of troops already on the ground, they'll be there. We're starting the, the event today for security purposes, they'll be there through the inauguration. We also know that, um, that the security, the Secret Service is in charge and that people will be focused on this. So uh, I think it's, it's a shame to have it be so armed. The, one of the great things about the Capitol has been mm-hmm. that you could walk in there, any member of the public could walk in there and go knock on the door of his or her representative. Uh, that's gonna be restricted now. It certainly won't be the case uh, over the inauguration, but I hope we can get back to some semblance of normal Uh, because this is the people's government um, and um, uh, we wanted to be accessible to the people.
1: In San Diego County, top state and federal prosecutors warned that any violence within the county related to inauguration-related protests would result in prosecution. It was a joint statement from San Diego County District Attorney Summer Steffen and U.S. Attorney Robert Brewer. The statement followed an FBI warning that armed protests were being planned at state capitals across the country for Inauguration Day. Members of the public have been encouraged to report any information related to planned violence. Meanwhile, President Trump released a video on the White House Twitter account denouncing any violence or criminal behavior. This week, Uber and Lyft drivers, along with labor unions, filed a lawsuit in California's Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of Proposition 22, which allows some gig companies to not give drivers the same benefits as employees. KPBS reporter Max Ravlin nadler says delivery drivers here in San Diego are already feeling its impacts.
0: Last month, delivery drivers at a Vons in San Diego were called in for a meeting with managers. These drivers had been working serious hours during the pandemic, delivering groceries in refrigerated trucks to older people and people with kids stuck at home. The drivers thought maybe they were getting a bonus or a raise after a difficult year. Instead, they were told their jobs were being eliminated and that they were going to be replaced by third-party gig workers at the end of February. One of those workers was 27-year-old Matthew, who did not want his full name or his voice used in this story because he's still employed by Vaughn's, which is owned by Albertsons. Matthew told us he struggled to tell his mom and disabled father for a few days that the person who had been supporting the household would be laid off in the middle of a pandemic. Orly LaBelle is a labor law professor at the University of San Diego.
4: It's clearly a monetary incentive. In the end, all of these corporations are acting out of bottom line costs cutting. And I I think what's happening is that Albertsons has uh, decided that a deal with, I believe Grubhub will be more efficient in in terms of their liabilities um, and in terms of their costs of delivery.
0: She said businesses like grocery stores are now emboldened to use gig workers after the passage of Proposition 22, which was passed by nearly 60% of California voters in November, after gig economy companies spent over $200 million supporting it. The proposition provided a carve-out from several state court rulings and a new state law that made companies like Uber, Lyft, or DoorDash hire many of the people that found full-time work through their apps. Instead, transportation-based companies are now exempted from having to do that, saving them millions of dollars.
4: If they had to fully employ or deem their delivery people employees, it would increase costs in such a way that they would maybe fold and and leave California. That was their claim.
0: But Albertsons contends Prop 22 had nothing to do with the changes it had made to its business model. In a statement, it told KPBS that the decision would allow the company to compete in the growing home delivery market more effectively. Lobel thinks it's irrelevant whether Albertsons chalks up the change to Prop 22, because the whole industry is now embracing the model.
4: With delivery, there is an efficiency argument where the same person who's working through this gig is then serving both restaurants and delivering from different grocery stores. And in this way, they can divide their hours and their time and their human energy into many more tasks that they're, they're filling throughout the day.
0: Advocates for Prop 22 say for delivery and transportation services, it provides flexibility for workers who might not be looking for a full-time job or want to make their own schedules. But union leaders like the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 135 Chief Todd Walters thinks this will just lead to the erasure of good-paying jobs. Every employer in the state of California is looking at this and drooling over this because these app-based drivers, the companies are not paying unemployment. They're not paying disability. They're not paying Social Security. They're not paying the taxes. The the independent contractor pays for that. You look at how much right now we rely on unemployment and state disability because of COVID. Imagine the more companies that go to independent contractors, those those social networks are going to get hit really hard. Matthew, the Vons driver, was making $18 an hour over two years on the job. Vons did offer to reassign him to a fulfillment center in Irvine. He says he won't be taking them up on that and couldn't understand why the company was letting him go at a time when its profits have been shooting up. He says that with 13 deliveries a day, he hasn't had time to think about what he'll do when he becomes unemployed, when the country will still be in the midst of a financially punishing pandemic.
1: That story from KPBS reporter Max Revlin nadler And coming up, a few weeks ago, KPBS brought you the data of coronavirus community outbreaks per zip code. Well, what happened with that data and what's to come? That's up next, just after this break. About a month ago, KPBS brought you the story about where COVID-19 outbreaks have occurred with a breakdown per zip code and establishment. That information was not available to the public until KPBS published it. Now, a lot has changed in a month, and joining me now to talk about that story and what happens next is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So just starting off, why was this information not available before?
6: Right. So um, since early on in the pandemic, uh, San Diego County has been talking about these outbreaks, but they say it in um, very vague terms where they'll say, you know, there were six at a bar slash restaurant, four at an office, um, things like that. And KPBS, along with other news outlets, uh, Voice of San Diego and the San Diego Union Tribune have for a long time been asking for more specifics, um, it's one of the biggest questions that we get from readers and listeners and viewers is uh, to know more about, about where these outbreaks are happening. And the county has man- maintained that, um, that they don't really need to provide more specifics um, because they do contact tracing. And so if you were in a place and exposed to someone who had COVID, they would be calling you. Um, and so they don't need to publish
1: uh, more specific information. And why was this information really important?
6: It's important to, to look at it with the context of the definition of an outbreak, um, which the county uses, which is that uh, there are three people who test positive for COVID-19 um, who aren't close contacts in the same place over a 14-day period. Um, so that could mean potentially you, know, you have three different diners uh, at a restaurant who are all there on separate nights. And so, you know, maybe it's conceivable that they somehow all picked up uh, COVID at that location, but it's also totally possible that it's just a coincidence that there were um, people in the same place um, and they later on tested positive for for COVID and told contact tracers basically, oh, I was at this restaurant uh, last weekend. Um, So, you know, in some ways, I think getting the information is important because it really paints a bigger picture of exactly what these outbreaks are and what the county is talking about when they talk about these outbreaks. But it also really does uh, shine a light specifically for employees of places and workers um, who, who don't necessarily know all the time that there have been uh, a large number of cases at the place that they're working. Um, so I think, you know, it's Im- important for for people who are working to have this information, and then it's important for the public just generally to understand more uh, what we're talking about when, when we talk about these COVID outbreaks.
1: Do other counties in California make this kind of information available?
6: Well, yes. Uh, L.A. County, um, they provide a lot of basically what we have provided through KPBS, but they just do it publicly um, up on the county website. They say the date of um, outbreaks, uh, the location, the business name, and even more importantly, I would say they break down whether it's um, employees or customers, um, which the county doesn't really specifically track. San Diego County doesn't specifically track that information. Um, so, So people in LA can... Especially, you know, if they work at a place, they can be checking regularly and see if they've um, had had exposure outbreaks at their place of work. And then people who are, you know, wanting to go to the grocery store or go out to eat or whatever. Well, I guess right now you can't go out to eat, but they can make decisions um, based on the information that's provided. But L.A. County is the only county in California that, that does that. No other counties are making this information publicly available.
1: How have San Diego County officials responded to KPBS publishing the data? Well,
6: we reached out to them um, multiple times uh, through a county spokesman and didn't get any, uh, they refused to to comment. Um, We obviously let them know before the story was published um, what we had and wanted to talk to them about it and they they refused that. Um, San Diego County Supervisor, uh, Greg Cox, did send a letter to uh, KPBS's general manager, Tom Carlo, asking us not to publish the information, but um, that wasn't through the reporters on the story, that was to to our general manager, and we obviously uh, declined to listen to that letter.
1: So, how will KPBS continue to track where COVID nineteen outbreaks are occurring? What what's next for this project?
6: Well, um, so we have actually sued the county to get them to release this information on a regular basis, um, and we we lost that lawsuit, but we are appealing. So our hope would be that the county will. Um, proactively just provide this information or, you know, hand it over to news outlets so that we can continue uh, this kind of analysis that we've done here and see how how things changing as we go through, you know, the next two, three could be more uh, difficult months here in San
1: Diego County. Claire, thank you so much. Thank you. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.